it's not just the right thing to do. It's better for your bottom line because when you hire caregivers, they come in with a skill set that they can apply to their work. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dalski. And I'm Rudy Sala. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And today we have returning guests. Now, Rudy, we noticed that after we had this guest on last year, the numbers just tripled because of this particular guest. So we have got gender theory expert. She is the author of Equal Partners, Kate Mangino returning guests to talk about the role of caregiving in our everyday lives. 73% Americans take care of somebody, a child, a parent, an uncle, an aunt, and that those are actually skills, those caregiving skills that translate into the workplace. Yes. And we do talk about working skills that are learned by caregiving. And I kind of go on a little bit of a tangent about all the skills at McDonald's. But actually, it, it makes some sense. I make sense, I promise. <laughs> I think that was me doing it because I was thinking about how important that customer service role. And I always remember how you say McDonald's was such a key part of that. So I was thinking about that. But Kate is pointed, was pointing us to it's the stuff that you're not employed for. So yeah, but it was a good, and we were talking about how we're both like better thinkers and how much more skilled we are just by being parents. Absolutely. Okay. So everybody, you loved Kate's episode from last year. You're going to love this one again. Rudy even gets to talk a little bit about film noir toward the beginning. <laughs> I do. I talk about it so often I've, I've forgotten, but I'm sure I ramble on about something because I ramble well, on. You brought up The Misfits and I looked up the trailer and now I want to see it. It's a classic. You do need to watch it. Okay. All right. We'll do. Okay, everybody. Now let's talk about... The correction. That's the Misfits is not a film noir. It's actually it's it's, it's post the the noir era. It's a 1962 film. It's just in black and white. Not every film that's in black and white is a film noir. Sorry, I had to correct you. <laughs> okay, let's talk about caregiving and let's see what are we going to call this? The skill of caregiving. Lovely. Okay. Okay, Rudy. Now I know that we're going to talk about Kate's article, but I am just hung up on an article that I read in The Atlantic, and it is making me think about Kate's work. So I wanted to dive into this, if that's okay. And Kate, welcome back to Goodness in the Details. I should throw that in. Um, There is an article in The Atlantic that was talking about this, and I think this has kind of gone under the radar because there are so many other things happening in the news, but that it's in Texas, Nebraska, and Louisiana that there are these small districts that are working to eliminate no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce came about in the 70s. For our listeners, that essentially means that when you want to exit a marriage, that you do not require proof of wrongdoing for the spouse. You can leave that marriage simply by your own autonomy that you no longer want to be in it. And one of the things that really hit me in this article was that suicide rates amongst women declined after no-fault divorce came into being. So these districts want to eliminate it. And the reasoning being is that they want to protect marriage. So Kate, with your work on domestic labor, on gender roles, what are some of your thoughts about no-fault divorce or the attempt to eliminate it? So many thoughts. (laughs) 
So obviously I am a supporter of no fault divorce. And I think that it it depends on, you know, so how how do you define a relationship and how do you define marriage and what is your goal? And I think if two people want to be together, then they should choose to be together and have the autonomy to make that choice. What I think is worth considering is what's the opposite of no fault. So you have no fault, which means you can exit your marriage whenever you want. The other option, the flip side to that is that there has to be some sort of quote unquote proof that, you know, allows one person to exit. And it often is things like infidelity, abuse, abuse towards children, right? Misuse of funds, something like that. There's usually these like reasons. And, you know, for everything that I've done in all of my work around gender roles and norms and what people are doing in households, not taking on cognitive labor, to the best of my knowledge, is not one of those reasons, right? Which means that you could be very unhappy in your partnership, be taking on cognitive load, doing all of the little things in the house to make your family go. And your relationship might be actually like draining to you as opposed to something that brings you happiness and joy and relief. It could be something that's just one more thing that you're doing, but it isn't going to be seen as something from a judge's perspective that gives you an excuse to leave your relationship. And so I just think the alternative to no-fault divorce is far scarier than no-fault divorce, if that makes sense to you. And I know you have thoughts too about sort of choice, no choice. Right. I think, and this will be great to to ask Rudy about in terms of dissolving um, any type of, let's say, business or relationship. But in my mind, to give grace to the argument to eliminate it is to protect marriage. But in my mind that it'll actually erode marriage because the foundation of that relationship is not only saying yes once, but every single day renewing that yes. And that means that you have the option of saying no. And that option of saying no, and when you are choosing yes, that that is actually the foundation of what gives marriage its value. So if you eliminate the no, you are eliminating the value of the yes. That's what makes it strong. You're actually, so I'm sorry, let me say, you eliminate the no, you are eroding the very essence of what makes a marriage really valuable. You're devaluing the yes. So I guess what I want to ask Rudy, since you're in law, is there any other relationship, like let's say a business relationship, a contractual relationship where you have to provide evidence of wrongdoing in order to dissolve the relationship? Or would this just be unique to marriage? It's a very good question. I'm glad you posed it that way. There's the thinking of I mean, in the concept of an employee-employer relationship, there's firing for cause and there's firing without cause. If you get laid off for cause, usually that's, you know, some kind of fraud, some kind of not following the policies to an extreme, et cetera, et cetera, then you, you're not entitled to any benefits going forward after said elimination. If you're fired without cause, then, you know, you, you're entitled to certain benefits. So it all comes down to, well, what were the facts and circumstances of the, of the termination? That's an employee-employer kind of context. And believe me, I'm, first of all, I'm not an employment lawyer. I'm just a regular lawyer. But um, you asked me a question, and I'm just trying to analogize to something from uh, um, immediately. There's also concepts in just contracts of default, right? If, a, if one party is in default, then the other party has certain rights. One of those rights might be to immediately terminate. But they might not be able to still immediately terminate, depending upon the facts and circumstances of that contract. For example, in the finance um, world, there are some contracts out there that only in the extreme case of an involuntary bankruptcy 
bankruptcy or, or something where an termination can happen immediately. Then that, you know, uh, is the is the idea of a default. So it's hard to say, but those are kind of two examples that come to mind. Just really quickly, one clarification for the audience, because, because number one, I am the film nerd and I'm also the history nerd on this podcast. No Fault Divorce exploded in the, in the 70s, the 60s, 70s in other states. And that's why there was the explosion of the divorces. However, one of the first places in the country, I don't know if it was the first place, but one of the first places in the country where there was no fault divorce was Reno, Nevada. And that's why there's a lot of films that are based in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s in Reno, Nevada, about mostly women moving to Reno to get residency for 60 days, and then they're able to file for no-fault divorce. One of the most famous films that touches upon that concept is The Misfits with Marilyn Monroe, Eli Wallach, very, very, very well-known film. Clark Gable's Clark Gable's last film. It, it was written by Marilyn Monroe's then then husband. So just, but there, but yes, I, I hear what you're saying. It exploded in the '70s, but No Fault had been around for a while. In fact, it even made it into Reno, Nevada. Even made it into Mad Men. Mad Men, the TV series. Uh, they people moved there. So there's this strange concept to think about it. Women used to have to move to Reno, Nevada, in order to get divorces. Right? Like that's how that's how serious it was. I mean then other states made no fault more of the norm and then you know they didn't have to go through that pain um previously just wanted to add that there because i think it's an interesting historical element to what we're discussing kate i don't know if you have any thoughts on that no i do and i think that's a good point i have two thoughts first of all about that is that so then then if it if you if you require a woman to move to get divorced then you're adding another layer of sort of economic privilege so those with the haves are going to be able to get lodging temporarily to live in Reno for two months to get their divorce. And those people who are on a, you know, making a daily wage and can't afford to move would not have that opportunity. And the other thing that came to mind when you were talking about the employer, sort of a contractual, there's a power difference when you have an employee and employer, right? That's not what we're supposed to have in relationships, right? You know, in theory, in a marriage, in a partnership, you come together as equals in your, you, one person doesn't have power over the other, right? That's the whole, you know, philosophy behind this equal partnership. And so by adding that level of, okay, there might be, there might be benefits if there's infidelity, but the fact that someone has to be forced to stay in that partnership and that you cannot walk away without a judge's consent takes away all sense of equality. It's a forced relationship as a force as, a, as opposed to a choice. And I love what you said earlier, Gwen, about you have to have the option of saying no to be able to say yes. I mean, that's why I value Rudy on this podcast. <laughs> Rudy continually says yes, Rudy. <laughs> because he could say no. So, yeah, you know, uh, if that's the only value that I'm providing is being a warm, you know, kind of silly audience. I'll take, you know, I'll take whatever I can get. Um, but a lot of, I mean, a lot of this has to do with, it's making me think about Kate's work on gender roles, because I think the no fault is actually something that benefits women. It's not really, so that's why it's a discussion about women, but it's this, you know, in order to eliminate it, it's this old school notion that she is property. Like, Hey, I bought her. I got her. She can't just leave for no reason. Like, And yep. it's, Yeah. It it's just, it's, it's interesting when you think, think the reason why I also brought up the misfits and the Reno and everything like that, 
think about that. If these are, if this is actually passed in other states, once again, people are going to have to move. They're going to have to get residency. It's going to be between the haves and the have-nots. Sure, the haves will be able to do it, but that's that's actually the implication here. You know, it, it also, I think there's also some analogy to restriction on re- abortion rights in certain states. If, if certain states eliminate it, those that can move out, move, get out of the state, if they have the funds or they have the connections, they'll just, oh, they'll just have to go to another state as if that's an easy thing to do. Right. I mean, that's right? happening now. That's happening yeah, all over. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it all comes down to economics, Kate, mm-hmm. just like you it said. It does. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. We're gonna talk, we're gonna talk about Kate's article on her research on soft skills and labor. I love this article. This is something that has been on my mind because I have heard um, an anti-feminist position that women can't have equality until they want to do the hard jobs. Men do the hard jobs and that's why women do not get paid as well. And so I've stepped back and thought, wait a minute, what are we talking about in terms of difficulty and hard jobs? In your article, you said that 73% of the workforce is in some form of caregiving. I'm just wondering, maybe I misunderstood what caregiving meant. How is 73% in that? What does caregiving mean for a profession? Not a professional caregiver. So someone who's doing caregiver in their personal lives. So parenting, taking care of an elder family member, taking care of a sick family member in 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 an unpaid personal caregiving role aside from their work life. And so your argument is that by virtue of being a caregiver, that the skills developed there are transferable and valuable skills. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Let's, let's talk about that. So this started, you know, my book, which I was on your show last year, and we talked about sort of my research in people's personal lives in gender roles and how that affects who does what in the household. And then I started to do speaking tours and engagements and started to realize that, yes, people were interested in that conversation. And I also had so many people come to me and say, this isn't just happening in my personal life. This is happening in my work life. I had men share with me, technically, I'm allowed to take paternity leave, but everyone, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if you actually care about your job, don't take paternity leave, just keep on going through or else you'll be pigeonholed as that guy who just wants a free vacation. Or every time there's a birthday at work and someone needs to pass around a greeting card, is it ever a guy that goes out? to the you know pharmacy to buy the greeting card and pass it around? Or are we asking women to do quote unquote women's work or female coded chores in an office space? And these stories that was were just two of multiple stories that I heard when I was talking to people. And so I think that's where the the idea for this research came from. And then I was very happy to work with my friend Lisa at the Rutgers Center for Women in Business. She's from the finance field. So she wanted to like take a really hard nosed look at this and say, let's talk to finance and business people about those skills that we acquire in our home lives. Do we use those in our in a workplace? You know, because up until now the message has been for employers, you should have paid caregiving leave. You should allow sick days. You should allow flexibility. But it was all about sort of this benevolence, right? You as employers should do this for your employees because it's the right thing to do. And you might lose money doing it, but it's the right thing to do. And frankly, very few companies have actually done that. So our argument is it's not just the right thing to do. It's better for your bottom line. Because when you hire caregivers, they come in with a skill set that they can apply to their work. They learn And, you know, we sort of brought it, we have the three categories, which I'm happy to talk about further, but they bring this level of humanity, productivity, and cognitivity 
to work that your skills training that you're already offering through your profession, it it isn't there, right? That they're learning something as a caregiver that's benefiting your workplace. What is an example of a skill you develop in caregiving that then is valuable for a business? We interviewed one person for our article who um, we'll call him James. And he said that learning empathy, so he takes care of his older parents. He's the caregiver for them and for he has two children. So he's a, a dad and a son. And he says that takes a lot of time in his personal life. And he has learned empathy. He has learned to listen. He has learned to put himself in their shoes. He has learned to not make quick judgments, but to listen to their side of things to tell them, wow, that's that's a really hard thing that you're going through. Let's see if we can work through this together. To not always be the judgmental problem solver person, but just to be that empathetic listener. And he says in his finance job, when he works with clients, it's a perfectly transferable skill because he's listening to clients. Clients are telling him, these are our challenges. These are our stresses. This is what's going on. He said that building that relationship, being able to say, I get it. That's a lot. You've got so much going on. I'm hearing you. I'm understanding. I'm not judging. But let's work together to figure out how I can help you through that. He said that helps him build relationships far better than just going into that, you know, mechanical, let me fix your problem, sell you our package sort of solution. You know, Rudy, this reminds me of it's not the same thing as caregiving, but, you know, Rudy is a fabulous lawyer and he credits his first job at McDonald's and that customer service as partly what makes him successful now. I I do. Mm -hmm. I do. In fact, here's the interesting thing about that story. Um, McDonald's was my second job. Usually that's the first job. My first job was a dishwasher in an old school Italian restaurant in La Mirada. I left that job, went to, and that was just literally like, I was just back there washing dishes that had no real interactions with people other than like the chef. Didn't really, I mean, became a great dishwasher. But when I moved over to McDonald's, they spend a ridiculous amount of time in these old school training videos about customer interaction and and customer service. And they, it's almost like they instill it in you. And I think it's a great, great stepping stone for anybody in any career to deal with all types of people in the world. And I do, I, I truly credit being there in that kind of an environment, like my success in dealing with, you know, customers and clients and, and people that I got to report to above people got to report to below. It's, you know, when you're out there interacting with people, yeah, hungry people, right? Hungry people are, are people that like are already have a little bit of an edge to them. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can't speak highly enough about the respect for people that I learned at that job and highly recommend taking a service type job for anybody that wants to become a better person, period just a better person, I do think that that training is very helpful. And and so going along, you know, that was that was your impetus and your experience. The service training obviously has influenced you in the rest of your life. And I think that is one avenue that someone could take. But I think what our research was trying to show is that that's not the only way. You can take care of an, you know, an elder family member. You can raise kids. You can take time off to you know, nurse an ill family member through chemotherapy. There are other ways that we can learn these interpersonal skills. And we wanted to highlight for companies that there's value in those experiences. There's value in your experience at McDonald's, certainly, but there are other ways that people can learn those skills. So instead of when, let's just say, I think it was 
in your article, was it like the mommy tax or something like that, that when a woman becomes a parent, then there's like this five, it could be five year gap in her resume, in her productivity, and that that is counted against her when actually that time of parenting could be a bonus. Could you explain that? Well, I think there's lots of ways that this works can work against women and we need to reframe it so that it works for everybody. Yes. If we have this norm that women take time off when they have kids and they're exiting the workforce and when they come back in, it's very hard for them to make up the salary that they missed out on and the experience. One step is when you're interviewing people, regardless of their gender, let's not make them women, but anyone who's left the workforce for a period of time to care for someone else, don't see that as them shirking their work responsibilities, but you know, lean into that and ask them, what did you learn during that experience and how can you apply that to our work? The second part of that is we have a culture where more women take time off to care for others. More women take time off for young children than men. More women are taking time out of their career to nurse or to take care of elder family members more than men. If we shifted that and we encouraged all people to take time off in their lives when they need to care for family members, we would start to see that shift away from a female-coded something, a task, to being something that humans do for each other. So instead of assuming that women need to step back from work and that we need to then invite women back into the workforce and and acknowledge the skills they learned to say, okay, all people should be doing this. We should encourage men to step back from work from time to time. And we should encourage all people to be able to link those skills back to their workplaces. It shouldn't be about a man, woman. It should really be about what humanity is doing for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read that it's actually better for businesses when they do allow for all of this time. So somebody might think, wait a minute, the business is going to lose money by letting their employees take this time off for family. But it's the opposite, because if you want the best of the best, they're going to go where there are the most amount of benefits for them to be productive. Absolutely. So I think that retaining staff is a huge part of this. And there are some statistics, gosh, I can't think of it off the top of my mind, but it was it was huge. It was like, 60 to 70%. So every every time an employee leaves, it requires a high percentage of their salary to be able to go out, find someone new, onboard them, train them, and get them up, right? So obviously the higher that position is paid, the more time, the more money it takes to find someone else to fill that gap when they're gone, to go through the process of bringing on a new employee and get them up to speed. That's a huge financial burden. So if you can be flexible and allow that person to take some time off, take some leave, even if it's coming at a 20 or 30% cost of their salary, you're still going to come out ahead than if they were forced to quit and you had to hire someone new. So there actually might be cost savings in giving someone a few weeks of paid caregiving leave as opposed to forcing them to leave. Mm. So think about the long term, not the short term. I'm thinking about in your article this, um, the cognitive ability. And it's made me reflect on how differently my brain is working now from pre baby girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's di- that it's different. The amount of juggling that I need to do in my mind in order to, you know, stay sane and get everything done and tend to everything that I need to tend to. I'm actually doing more now mm-hmm. than before I had her. And I'm not entirely sure how that's possible. I'm wondering, Rudy, can you think of like your brain, like the cognitive labor that your brain was doing pre-kids versus now? 
you know, I was, as I was speaking about all that great training that I got at McDonald's and then Kate, you know, followed up and said, yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, but, but really all you have to do is, you know, be some kind of a caregiver. It's so true. Cause I, cause I'm actually thinking about how many interactions I even have with more various types of people in various settings with kids, whether that be in, in managing doctor office visits, whether that's going to Target to get uh, some some cold medicine for kids, whether that's planning for soccer and, and, and dealing with other parents and just the people and the interactions that you have just as a parent is mind blowing to think about. And then, and then you layer on a job and you layer on, you know, passions like this podcast on everything. I don't know how, I I don't know what kind of a person I was before I had kids, but I'll say I, this is not going to make a lot of sense, but I'll just say it. I think I'm accomplishing way more as a parent because my brain is constantly thinking about all of the things that I have to do and it's compartmentalizing and it's become like a file cabinet of things because I've become a parent and the kids and the family become the number one priority. So you have these kids, they automatically go to number one and then you have to allocate all of your other resources and your mind in that waterfall of priorities. So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting, like becoming a parent and helping to manage a household and keep a career and doing all that type of stuff, no matter what, the family is the number one priority and everything else falls after that. And then those things just kind of have to fill in the remaining slots. But I would I, say, I, here's, here's my question for you, Rudy. When you become a parent, you're, you're, as you know, Gwen, you were talking about my brain's working over time. I'm, I'm like expanding. I'm capable of doing more. I've learned I have to do more. So I meet like someone's raised the bar and I've met it, right? I'm doing more. Right. I have to do more. I yep. find that because I've learned time management and I'm doing more, I can do more at work too. Like the productivity it's, I think employers sometimes think if you do more at home, you're going to do less at work. And I actually think, no, I've learned how to do more. I can do more. In both areas, I'm really good at time management. I'm really good at communication. I'm really good at budgeting what I can do and where, who needs to be in what meeting. So I think that we yep. need to maybe think you just we're just growing the pie. We're not necessarily taking pieces away from either work or home. Let's think about how we can be more productive overall. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you opened the door for me to brag a little tiny bit because I. I <laughs> but as. I've become a parent. And as I was speaking about that time management skills and everything, I have become more successful. Mm -hmm. I've become more successful as a Mm -hmm. lawyer, I've become Mm -hmm. more successful as a business person. I've become more successful in everything that I do. I have become more successful because of that. And, and at the same time, you know, we've talked about this a lot before creatively. I've become more successful, more successful creatively than I was before I had kids because the, the time management and everything. So I couldn't agree more with you. Having the ability to manage a caregiving role, no matter what that is, absolutely leads to success in business and economically, I believe. Take that quote. That's a great quote. <laughs> I think it gives you a sense of humor too. Mm-hmm. I I mean, this was just an example, but I had a Zoom meeting with uh, with my department, the philosophy department. And, you know, I mean, I'm on mute. You know, you mute yourself on Zoom until you have something to say. And at this moment where I am going to contribute, the second I unmuted myself, my daughter comes up to me and says, Mama, I have poopers right into the microphone. And so I thought, oh, my God. So my immediate thing was, 
I know there was a part of me that was like, oh my God, this is so, like, I'm scared that this just happened. But then everybody laughs, you know, like there was no cost to me being a mother in that moment that at the exact same moment, I'm going to try to speak at a meeting, it's Zoom, so I'm at home, that that's when my daughter um, comes up. So there was something where it was like this moment of levity in this actually very serious meeting about budget cuts. Right, right. <laughs> and I had a bit of a fear. I think in your article, when you were talking about you know, the the women taking this time off and it's considered to be a problem to her career, that I think that even in that moment, that's the kind of thing that was going on in my mind. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not serious right now. I've got a child here. But it's the opposite. It's not that. It is what brings me to work in a different way or the way I interact with my students is different. And it's also, I think, made me more loving with my daughter because when things like that happen, we can just laugh, you know, it's, it's life. Yeah. And I do think that one of the benefits of the coronavirus is that I think we all stopped hiding our personal obligations as much as we had done before, right? We were all working on Zoom for a while. And so our pets and our kids and, and everything was sort of interrupting our calls. And I think now that there's a certain level of tolerance and expectation that that's going to happen. I'm noticing that more and more of my male colleagues will say to me, oh, I can't take a meeting until 10 next week because my partner's out of town and I got to take the kids to school. They're not hiding that anymore. All they had to say was, I can't do a meeting until 10, right? But they're sharing, Mm. they're sharing that ownership. They're sharing like, oh, I have to take Thursday morning to, you know, do a tour of the nursing home with my mom. So let's do that tomorrow, right? I think that sharing that for everyone makes us more human, makes our subordinates see that we're more human, and then gives everyone permission to have those conversations. Oh, that's so right. That's a big shift. You're right. You know, I'm thinking about the idea of children are to be seen and not heard, that children are like, that's something that you, oh gosh, you're so right. So many more people are talking about what they do with their children and that maybe that's why they can't make X. They can't do such and such. Yeah. And I think it's healthy for all of us. And I think it helps. I've encouraged my husband and other men in my life. You know, if you're going to take an afternoon off to go do the school trip with your fourth grader, put it in your bounce back. I'm taking the afternoon off to take my kid on a class trip. Now, not every industry is open to that sort of thing. But if you have that flexibility, you know, have that conversation, talk about it out front and set the example for younger men that are working in your organization, that this is okay. It is okay to take time off, to care for people in your family, that we value that. And when you come back, you're going to be better and more refreshed than you were before. That's excellent. Rudy, do you have any more questions? I do not. I think Kate's call there at the end, that call to action for... Yeah. Call to action to men. I mean, as a call to action to men, I think some women as well who like to hide it, that call to action that hey, if you got something to do for your family, let it be known, especially if you're in your management position, especially if you have people that are under you, let people know that your family is a priority and that you will prioritize your family. So this way they won't feel bad about doing the same. That's a really good call to action, Kate. I'm glad you said that. I don't do that in my out of office. I just don't. I'm very, I'm very limited in my out of office. In fact, I barely ever send out of offices because I'm available 24 seven. It's a whole lawyer thing. Right. But in general, I do take the position of being honest with everybody. If I have a family thing or if it's a doctor or something, I do do that, but I'm going to do it even more. So I'm glad you said that. I will. 
And then I think, as you said, it opens the door for younger junior professionals, for people that are, you know, having kids. There's this aging population and a lot of us, you know, are in that sandwich generation. We've got little ones at home and we've got aging parents that we're trying to take care of as well. There's a lot of pressure there. So I think that acknowledging the skills and the experience that we learn outside of the office and that, you know what, I might have to take a couple weeks off or I might have to leave early a few days, but I'm going to come back with empathy. I'm going to come back with better time management. I'm going to come back with problem solving skills that I didn't have before, that all of that is going to come and benefit my employer in the end. You're spot on. Right now is the critical time with the child raising and the elder care exploding. I mean, I'll just tell you tangentially, I'm seeing a lot more emails internally. Uh, I need a referral to an elder abuse attorney. I need an attorney for trusts and estates. I need an attorney for this. Because, you know, we don't do that type of law. But it's like, oh, I'm noticing some patterns here. It's like almost like on an every other day basis. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. There's something, these attorneys who a lot of them have told me, oh, yeah, my kids are off college. Ah, they're out of the house. Oh, that's very interesting because now they have to take care of the parents. And that is something that needs to be normalized and it needs to be advertised and it needs to be accepted. And your call to action is very good, Kate. Kate, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. This episode of Good is in the Details is brought to you by AvonmoreInc.com. Do you play bridge or do any of your friends play bridge? you got to go to AvonmoreInc.com. They have everything you need for your next bridge party. Bridge tallies, coasters, smart playing cards, which are also fantastic for kids. Go to AvonmoreInc.com and let them know that Good is in the Details sent you. I'll link it in the show notes. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're enjoying the show, take a screenshot of it and tag us on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod, or follow us on Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. I'll link that in the show notes and you can join our book club. And if you join, you'll also get a shout out from us on the pod. We're also on Facebook, Good is in the Details Pod. Okay, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up for you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate Mangino, for joining. Good is in the details again. We love your work, and we cannot wait to have you on again to talk about more of your research. All right, everybody. Bye.